Hey, everybody. Welcome to HMH's Future of Transportation podcast. I'm John Halpin. And if you're a regular listener or viewer, you know that on this show, we host a series of chats with experts in the transportation industry. Joining me today is Desmond Wheatley, CEO of Beam Global, which creates renewable energized products for EV charging infrastructure. I'm going to let Desmond explain what that means in just a minute. Desmond, thank you so much for joining us today. John, it's my great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So um, so Beam Global, uh, it basically, it, uh, renewable energized products, I'll let you explain. Your priority product is called the EVR. Can you briefly explain what it is? Before I do that, John, I just want to start out with you. You describe me as an expert, or at least you have experts on the on the show. And uh, I want to uh, immediately point out that my view, there are as yet no experts in this industry. We're all learning. Uh, There's no playbook. It's all brand new. And that's what's so terribly exciting about it. It's happening at lightning speed. Um, And really, one of the most significant build outs of infrastructure. uh, This is going to sound like hyperbole, but frankly, this ever happened will be the transition from gasoline to electricity. So thank you for the for the plug. But uh, uh, we're, we're all learning and that's part of what's so great about this. Um, to your question, uh, EVARC, yes, is without a doubt our, our, our flagship product. And that's uh, EVARC, by the way, is a, one of those annoying acronyms, but it stands for Electric Vehicle Autonomous Renewable Charger. And the really important word in all of that is autonomous. Uh, this, this is a product which provides the EV charging experience in the same way that connecting to a grid tight electric vehicle charger, which is buried in the ground and connected to wires and off to the, the, you know, the, the utility grid. We're providing that same experience, but we're doing it in this autonomous manner because we are not connected to anything. Uh, the product is not connected to the utility grid because it generates and importantly stores all of its own electricity. So it's available to charge vehicles day or night or during periods of inclement weather. Um, and then it's not actually even connected to the ground uh, by anything but uh, Sir Isaac Newton's theory, gravity, the same thing that's holding all of us to the ground at the moment. And because of that, the EVR, this autonomous nature of it is what's so terribly important about it. Rapidly deployed, no construction, no electrical work, no engineering work, no consultants, and therefore no pl- permitting or planning required in any of the environments uh, where we're deployed. And then you just get to drive on sunshine without a utility bill. And also, by the way, very importantly, without risk from uh, centralized failures of the utility infrastructure, which the rest of us call blackouts or brownouts. Uh, we still fuel vital vehicles or any vehicle uh, during those periods. So it's a fantastic use of technology um, and I'm very proud of it. And it's an American product developed, invented here and, and, and manufactured here and, uh, and now exported everywhere. So if I have a shopping center or a, uh, an office park, um, I don't have to, if I'm getting six charging stations, I don't have to connect anything into the ground to the local utility company. We bring in your product. It's portable, right? I mean, it's big, but it's portable. How much does it weigh? Is there weight to it? Sorry to spring that on you, but. No, no, not at all. So I actually prefer the term transportable. Um, because okay. portable, you know, tends to conjure up, the, you know, something that you can pick up with a handle or wheel around on a dolly or something. That's definitely <laughs> not it, right? Uh, this is transportable. It does require specialized equipment to deploy it. Um, the thing weighs ten and a half thousand pounds, um, but it fits inside a standard legal size parking space. Um, and very importantly, and this is an important part of our patent, uh, not only does it fit inside a standard legal size parking space, but it doesn't reduce available parking in any way because vehicles park on it. 
And that was a very important part of the engineering behind the way the products put together. We were able to get it to stability to where we didn't need to bolt it down or glue it down or set it in concrete or anything like that, and yet still not take up all the, that space in the parking space. And to use the example that you used, a shopping mall or somewhere like that, they are not going to give up parking spaces. They didn't build them. They didn't spend all the money building those parking spaces because they didn't right. need them. Uh, it's, a, it's a cost center, but a very important one for them. And beyond that, Many jurisdictions, most jurisdictions, in fact, have a minimum requirement for the number of parking spaces that you need on a piece of property to serve the use on that property. If you take away just one of them by putting a big lump of concrete or a shipping container or something in that parking space, you've essentially knocked the entire property out of compliance. And nobody wants to do that for EV charting. So that's what's so important about it. So it's heavy. It is transportable. Now, the good news about that is you can move it around and uh, malls, for example, may have seasonal variations or to go back to my opening comment, because none of us are experts, no one's really sure yet exactly where the best place to put EV charging is. If you put it in the ground, those trenches are dug, that concrete's bored, those wires are pulled, right. there's nothing you can do to undo that. But with our product, you could deploy it in a mall uh, uh, and, and test it out for six months, eight months, see how it goes and then put it somewhere else and see how that moves and see how that works. And then beyond that, that transportability is very important to some of our bigger customers, like, for example, uh, the state of California Office of Emergency Services. Uh, they fund the deployment of, the, of our products across the state of California, and they're deployed for normal EV charging. Now, if there's a, wire, a wildfire or an earthquake or some other sort of disaster or emergency, they can pick those EV arcs up from where they've been providing that EV charging and fleet them to the locations where there's a desperate need for power of any sort. And we'll continue to charge their electric vehicles. And then through the emergency power panel on our product, also provide life-saving electricity for first responders and others. So the transportability is a really important piece of it. Uh, but, but again, not quite portable, but definitely transportable. Right. Okay. So I was going to ask what makes it different than the competition. For, first of all, there's no direct competition. No one's making a product like yours, right? This is a great, a great point to raise. And if I, again... I have to be totally honest. I don't have the resources, time, energy, or money to scour the globe looking for competing products. But let me tell you who does, our customers. So starting with some of our larger customers, New York City is our largest municipal customer. The state of California, our largest state customer, but we also have contracts in place with Florida, Massachusetts, and many others. And in each instance, these end, the federal government for that matter, we now have a GSA contract in place with the federal government. In each instance, those entities did uh, competitive RFIs, global. Anyone in the world could respond to these things and, and show a competing product and then let competitive contracts. So these were not sole source. Anybody could have responded to them. And I can tell you that in every instance, without fail, we were the only company that had a product which met specifications, which leads us to believe that there's no direct product competition. That said, that of course doesn't mean we don't compete with anybody. Um, I, I'll, I'll come back to who we do who we do compete with in a second, but there's a couple of other who we don't compete with that I want to make absolutely clear. First of all, we do not compete with anybody in the EV charging industry. That's not what we do. In fact, we enable them. We don't provide a product which displaces their product. We provide a product which makes it easier, faster, and from a total cost of ownership point of view, less expensive for them to deploy and operate their product. So if you've heard of the big companies like ChargePoint and Blink, Electrify America, Enel, any of the above, their products are operating for their customers somewhere in the United States on our products. We just yeah. make them work without the construction or electrical work. So that's one big important one to say that we don't compete with. The other one that people often suggest that we compete with uh, because we provide a source of electricity is the utility. 
uh, well, you, you know, you're, they sell electricity, you're providing electricity, you must compete with them. Not at all. Actually, utilities are our customers. We're just another tool in their toolkit to do what their mandate is, which is to provide electricity to their constituency. No one cares if that comes from a, a generation plant somewhere 100 miles away across transmission distribution lines, or if it comes from right there in the parking lot. The utility is serving its mandate, which is to provide electricity, and they just use our product to do it. So that's a couple of important who we don't compete with. Who do we compete with? Well, if you think about the average EV charging deployment in that mall that you brought up there, mm -hmm. to put that charger into a parking space where somebody's going to park their car, you've somehow got to get power to it. Uh, no one ran the kind of power that you need to fuel electric vehicles around shopping mall parking lots or any other parking lot for that matter. They might have put enough power out there to run the street lights, but that's a light bulb. It takes a lot less mm -hmm. energy to run that than a car. So somehow you've got to get that big electrical circuit to that parking space. And what that means is engineering. That means a general contractor who will dig the trenches, pour the concrete and do all these other things. It means an electrical contractor who will do all the electrical wiring and, and that sort of stuff. It means a permitting consultant because you're going to have to go through a bunch of permitting environmental impact on that sort of stuff. And then it means a connection to the utility. So there's going to be a bunch of you know, service providers. So there's a whole ecosystem of service providers, all very worthy people, uh, all doing a great job and all that sort of stuff. But it's those people who our product displaces and therefore competes with. And in my view, this is the perfect application of technology because what we have done as a clean tech company here in, in Southern California is we've identified a risky, time-consuming and increasingly expensive process and we've replaced it with a clean tech product. Uh, so think of this as this is no longer lick the stamp and the envelope and walk to the mailbox. This is press send on your Gmail. That's what we are to EV charging. Don't dig trenches. Don't pour concrete. Don't pull wires. Don't rely on the utility grid with the blackouts and everything else like that. Just drop this clean tech product off and you get to the same place. So you you talked about permitting, uh, I think, a couple of times. It, like I'm thinking of I, I'm a native New Yorker. Isn't there permitting for everything? <laughs> yeah, so really incredible. Actually, New York is our biggest municipal customer. Um, and we love uh, working with them. I mean, you know, I, I can tell you something. As a little boy in Scotland, watching movies like Fort Apache, the Bronx, which most of your listeners are probably too young to remember. But, but, but those, those, in, in my wildest dreams, I would never have imagined that I might have product operating that environment. And I can tell you that today, Bronx Police Department uh, cars are charging on our products. And that is just like the most extraordinary uh, thing to think of. But yes, permitting... Any jurisdiction can make you permit anything they want to. Uh, there are some legal restrictions on that, but uh, you know federal legal restrictions. But in general, they can tell you you know no blue shirts on Tuesdays if they want to. They might have a bit of trouble getting that across. But but yeah, so you're right that any anyone can do that. But the, the the key thing to think about here is the triggers for the normal kind of permitting that we're talking about. They want to look mm -hmm. at appropriately. They want to look at trenching. They want to look at wires. They want to look at, is the concrete hard enough? Uh, did you separate things properly? And, you know, did you do all the flooded control and all these other things? Because we don't disturb the ground in any way, because there is no construction project, because there is no electrical work, none of the normal trigger points for permitting uh, come into play. So now it's simply a question of aesthetics. Uh, you know, do, is, is there some township or somewhere that says, hey, we don't like to look at that thing? That's always possible. We haven't encountered it. And I think part of the reason for that is because everybody recognizes that this need for electric vehicle charging is so great. And to do it on American renewable energy, right, with an American-made product, an American-developed technology, politically, to say no to that is, you know, I mean, that's yeah. why. You know, who are you helping? 
right? And so that, that's why we, I can tell you in hundreds of deployments across the United States and even internationally, uh, we have never yet had to get a permit to deploy one. Okay. Um, do most of your customers purchase, I mean, we, we talked about different types of business. I mean, this is a commercial product generally. Is, do they, is there a normal, you know, hey, most of our sales are four of them or 10 of them or anything like that? Like what, what's your most common use case? Yeah. So let's speak about customer breakdown to start with. Um, up, up until the end of 2019, often commercial deployments were as much as 50% of our, of our uh, revenue, with the other 50% being taken up by government deployments. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in both instances, the use cases are pretty similar. Uh, in both instances, you're talking about either supplying charging for fleet vehicles so that mm -hmm. corporate entities electrifying their fleet or the government entities electrifying their fleet, and they need charging. Um, and they need charging where they need it, not where the grid is, and they need, and if, especially with fleet vehicles, they need charging that will not fail during a blackout or a brownout, right? Because they can't, otherwise they lose their fleet. Uh, this is an underrecognized, you know, issue with the with the whole uh, industry, frankly. Um, or it's for workplace charging. Again, corporate entity or the or the the government entity putting charging in so that their employees and guests and visitors that come to their environments, right. uh, everyone's showing up in a car, right? They increasingly need to charge them, and so we've been doing that. That was up until the end of 2020, 2019. 2020, um, the big C came along, COVID. And uh, we ended up in a situation where there simply wasn't any workplace charging being deployed, at least not through yeah. not through us anyway, because no one was going to the office, uh, you know, and people were working from home. And so we saw the commercial side of the business more or less dry up entirely. However, it was more than filled up by an increase in government activity. Uh, at that time. And so we've seen growth even throughout COVID. In fact, we just announced this morning uh, that, that pre, kind of pre-announced the, the full year, uh, but record 62% uh, uh, deliveries up in 2021 over 2020. And again, that was in a, in a height of COVID year. Uh, you can imagine what's going to happen this year. Um, mm -hmm. So so uh, that's where it's been broken down. Now, use case again has been fleet vehicles and workplace sharding, and then some public you know, just deployed in places so that the, the general public can charge uh, from them. And then order size has really been interesting too. Um, we we were getting a lot of one and two unit orders uh, from, from customers who quite often would test them for a while. And it's yeah. too good to be true, right? Hang on a minute, I can drive an electric car and I don't even need to connect to the grid. I don't believe this. So they would give us one or two unit order. And then often uh, we, we get a lot of repeat orders from existing customers. Uh, and they're usually larger. Now what we're seeing is uh, in our pipeline, larger volumes in the first order. And I think there's a couple of things going on there. First of all, we're no longer a scary concept, right? We're, you know, the, we, I, we deploy for the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, we, we, we deploy for the New York Police Department. We deploy for Caltrans, the California State uh, Department of Transportation, not exactly a, an early adopter of new technology or a risk taker, right? And so that's helped people get over that fear, I think. And then the other thing, uh, frankly, John, is urgency. Uh, people, electric vehicles are coming really quickly now. Uh, Ford F-150, GM Hummer, Rivian pickup, you know, the, the electric vehicles for 10 years have been the domain of elitists and Teslas and hippies in, in Nissan Leafs. Now they're becoming mainstream, just much better than what, what Americans have been driving up to this point. And so we're seeing a real urgency. People are saying, hey, I'm going to put some EV charging in. And then they're doing their homework and they're finding out it's going to take them 18 months. In fact, by the way, you mentioned New York City, a 24-month process to go through environmental permitting and all yeah. that. We do the same thing in under an hour. Um, That's so. Great. So, yeah, so they're they're starting to figure this out. And I think that urgency and combined with a lessening of fear of the unknown is contributing to these larger order sizes and a lot more of them. So it's funny. I was going to ask you that, like how much of your 
um, when you approach potential customers, how, how much of it is education? Because I was thinking about it. It's like, okay, if, if I need to electrify my property, right? And, and I, I think, okay, I'm going to get six charging stations put in. And then you come along and you say, well, we can do it a totally different way. And it's like, I got to learn something else. I understand that the, the benefit of it, but how much of it is education for you? You said it's less scary now. And I guess that's a good thing because I would have thought that that's a hurdle for you to overcome. No, you listen, you absolutely nailed it. Um, so if you were to ask my 13-year-old daughter or my 16-year-old son uh, what they both fervently believe about me, they would tell you that they think I'm mad. Uh, for, on a whole bunch of different levels. Absolutely start raving bonkers on a whole lot of different levels. And it's certainly true that if you look at the kind of business that this business that I have that I've dedicated a decade of my life to, I got involved in a biz, in an industry that no one knew anything about and everyone was terrified by, which was getting electric vehicles, right? Most people doubted it. It's only been the last year you can pick up the Wall Street Journal and have them write anything even remotely positive about electric vehicles, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, for, before now, it's all been the consumers will never buy them. They're no good. They don't work and all that sort of stuff. Now they're starting to recognize that's nonsense. In fact, it's completely the opposite is the truth, okay? So I get involved in an industry that no one knows anything about and everybody's terrified by. And then I say, oh, and by the way, the way that you're going to do this is some whole new black magic and sorcery that you, even, that you understand even less. Right? <laughs> Madness. No one would recommend such a path. But I'm a glutton for punishment, particularly when I believe in what I'm doing. And the simple fact of the matter is that you are absolutely right. Education has been the single biggest barrier to entry for us uh, moving down the road. People simply can't believe it. And it, incredibly, even customers who we have spent a great deal of time educating, walked them across the, the product, showed them how it works, and they described to them, introduced them to other users and all that sort of stuff, still make comments like, oh, well, we can't use it because it won't charge at night. What? Well, it won't charge at night, solar powered. Yeah, no, but remember we explained the storage and everything? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like they just can't get their heads around it. Or they'll say, um, you, you spent a great deal of time explaining to them how it stays on the ground, and they'll say, well, I, I don't want to do this because I don't want to have to get a contractor to dig a foundation. No, no, we remember there is no foundation, right? It, right. It, 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 it's been very hard. But I do think that what we've seen is because there's been so much adoption of it and by very well-known both corporate and governmental entities, not risk takers, right? Uh, yeah. uh, that that people are starting to say, hang on a minute, this clearly works. I tell people all the time, New York, people from New York are mad, but they're not mad enough to keep spending millions of dollars on the same thing year after year after year, more and more and more of it if it doesn't work. Right. Okay. Um, so one naive question is funny. You, you talked about the storage and everything. So, so once the electricity is stored, there, there's no difference. Like if, if I want to charge my car in X number of minutes, there's no difference between where the energy comes from. You have the electricity stored. It's the same thing. It's, just, it's literally for, for me, the driver, it's the same process, the same. Everything's the same, right? Other than I'm parking on your product. Except it feels better. But no, you're absolutely yeah. right. There's no, the vehicle and the charger decide the speed of the charging. Remember, yeah. we don't do either. We just provide that charger with a source of electricity and a mounting asset. And so we do, there are three levels of charging. The really slow one, which is like plugging into 120 volt outlet in your house. And then there's a mid range, which frankly will be the one that is the, the winner. That'll be the majority of charging. And then there's high speed, sometimes called DC power charging, a bit more like a gas station experience. We do all three of them. Uh, it's different expense and different you know, functionality and different use cases, but we do all three of them. But you're absolutely right. From the consumer's point of view, uh, there's no difference in that. You're still plugging in, you're still walking away, your vehicle's still fueling up while you're doing something else. Um, I can tell you this, though. The, it feels different. I've been driving electric vehicles for 10 years, and there's just something about filling the car up with sunshine, 
which feels different. You almost feel like there's even a difference in the driving experience. And one thing that's interesting about that, in instances where our product has been deployed next to grid tie charger, same charger, let's say a charge point charger, in in a concrete pedestal and right next to one of our units with the same charge point charger, everything is the same. The consumer will select to pull onto our product before they'll plug into the grid tied one. Why, we don't know more visible maybe maybe they like it driving on sunshine who knows what it is maybe it's because early adopters of evs care about the environment and as a result think the solar thing is a cleaner way of going and they're right i don't know Uh, but it is it it feels better but you're absolutely right the experience is the same so let's go back to the mall i talked about earlier the mall can charge if if it's a grid-based charger the mall can charge me to charge my car yes right if suppose theoretically they could do the same with the solar power charger, but it's not costing them any money. That's right. The power from the solar charger, or yours. So that's a huge. That's a cost advantage for them. That's exactly right. It's a, it's so you're there's nothing to stop them selling the electricity to you or charging you to use the charger. The only right. difference is the one that you pointed out, which is that there is no unit cost of energy when they use our product. They don't have right. to recoup and re, and pay a utility bill. So then the economics become simple. Is the cost of the construction of the grid tie charger plus the 20 years of utility bills that you're going to get for it greater or lesser than the cost of the EVR, particularly after tax benefits? And I can tell you in hundreds of deployments across the country, in every instance, we have been cheaper than the avoided cost of construction, never mind the utility bill. So from that point of view, once you've spent less money deploying an EVR than you would have spent pouring concrete, digging trenches and pulling wires, from that right. point forward, all of your energy is free because you don't need to amortize the cost of the electricity across the product because you actually your, your return on investment was day one based upon avoided cost of construction if you had to deploy the charger, which everyone does. You can't get away with not doing it in the future, even now. All right. Let's go to the big, a bigger industry discussion. Um, the federal infrastructure bill for you, for the EV industry in general, did it go far enough? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, go, look, and you don't even take my word from this. Goldman Sachs has has publicly stated that this is a six trillion dollar infrastructure build out. Trillion. The Fed's just approved seven point what four billion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's, there's a difference between the B and the TR, right? And it's only <laughs> exactly. zeros, but zeros matter, okay? Um, so, no, of course, it didn't go anywhere near far enough. I mean, it's a hell of a lot better than we where we were before they passed it. I mean, uh, what's incredible, John, is that we're looking at an industry now where between what the feds are, have announced, and, and California just announced $6.1 in spending, uh, you know, mm-hmm. rivaling federal spending. It's pretty incredible. And you're going to see an awful lot more of this happening. But we're in an industry now where we're going to see more money spent each year for the next – this is committed – for the next several uh, many years than we have seen spent in the entire last decade by everybody into right. the industry, right? So you're, you're, you're a decade of spending compressed into a year, more than that every year for several years coming uh, out of the point. And that's before a lot of the big players have really started to, to get involved in this. All of the automotive OEMs will have to get into this space because it's existential. They can't exist without EV charting infrastructure and they can't wait for someone else to build it like they did with the gas stations because there's no business model to support that right. in the same way. We don't have the Rockefeller, we don't have Standard Oil, okay? We, 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 there's gonna have to be a different way of building this out. Um, so. 
it's nowhere near enough, but it's far better than it was. And if you think about where we are, we have a GSA contract, which for your listeners that don't know what that means, this is a federal uh, pre-negotiated contract. You don't need to go through any kind of competitive process now because it's all been done. So anybody in the federal government can buy our product uh, just by pointing and clicking, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, without going through a process. And then think about how stimulus spending is. They're always looking for shovel-ready projects. Shovels? We don't need your stinking shovels. There is no shovel. <laughs> We deploy without any construction work at all, okay? Uh, we're an American-made product. We're a disaster preparedness asset because we continue to charge vehicles and provide vital emergency power during blackouts and brownouts, which are on increasing, not getting not getting less. Uh, and we're the most rapidly deployed and highly scalable and lowest total cost of solution out there. So I, I believe that the federal spending will be very impactful for the country, nowhere near enough. It'll be very impa impactful for BEAM as well. Um, and I'll reserve comment about whether or not it's enough for us. Okay. Um, so the utility companies, are they going to be able to keep up with this? With, with, with the demand that seems to have turned into a, an, an avalanche, really? No. No. Nobody is. We hope that all of us together can. But yeah. there is nobody who can keep up with this. Uh, Elon Musk last year, I think it was him, said that, that will require a doubling of utility capacity to provide uh, enough electricity for EVs. And Elon's, you know, dare I say it, uh, sometimes guilty of hyperbole. In this instance, I think he's <laughs> understating the problem. I think it's going to require a lot more than a doubling. And this makes perfect sense. If you think about it, when the grid was built, and this is in your own home, in your office park, at the local neighborhood level, at the regional level, at the national level. The grid was never built with the intention of replacing oil as a source of fuel. And energy doesn't just miraculously materialize when you want it, right? We, we sort of wish it would. You have to put the infrastructure into to generate that energy and then to move it around. And no one built the grid with the intention of replacing the entire, think of what the oil infrastructure is, every gas station, every refinery, every oil tanker, every oil field, that's an awful lot to replace. There is no way that the utilities can do that, and certainly not in the next two decades, which is when it's going to have to happen. So I, I heard from one of our customers the other day, a very big and important customer, and I won't name names here, but they, they are, they're very concerned about the lack of utility capacity. And so they asked their utility, who's a very big, well-known utility that you would know, and they said to them, what, what are you, when are you going to get the capacity, or can you get capacity for us and when? And the response from the utility was, we think, we believe that we will be able to provide capacity at some time in the future, but we don't know when. And when I heard that, I said, I believe the second part of that answer, but I do not believe the first part of it. Um, there will have to be, and, and actually, John, this is a fantastic thing because it suits America perfectly. What's going to be required here is a great deal of innovation. There's going to be a great deal of new technology, a great deal, a great quantity of new products and new solutions to solve this product, uh, this problem. Uh, and you know, we're a great example of that. We're one example of it, but there will be many others. And and it's going to take all of us, and a, and frankly, a vast amount of spending. But the good news is, at the end of the day, we're going to have an infrastructure which re completely removes our reliance on foreign oil. Uh, which cleans up the environment if you care about that, and which will dramatically reduce the United States OPEX. If, think about a nation that doesn't have to pour trillions of dollars through the tailpipe to keep operating. Right. Where is that money going to go? It doesn't evaporate. Money's like energy. It goes somewhere yeah. else. And that's going to be a great opportunity for all of us. I'm delighted to be playing a role in it. Okay. Um, do you think that speaking of the progress in the space, the feds say 
they want half of passenger vehicles to be half of new passenger vehicle sales to be electric by 2030. You think they're going to get there? Well, so let's look at a couple of the, the, the contributors to this. Um, forget the feds for a minute. Let's talk about Gavin Newsom, yep. governor of California. Very, I don't care whether you like his intel, his politics or not. He's a very clever chap. And he made an, a, an executive order banning the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles, essentially starting in 2035. And everybody's like, my God, what a risky and visionary thing to do. Hang on a second. Yeah. We know that all major European nations have already announced the same bans, and some of them well in advance. Starting in 2025 in Norwich, just a couple of years away from now, you will not be able to buy internal combustion engine vehicles. In the UK, where I'm from, 2030. Okay, now if you look at the automotive industry, the OEMs cannot any longer produce one class of vehicles profitably for Europe and another class for North America. 20, 30 years ago, maybe. But now you can't make electric vehicles for Europe and, and gasoline and diesel for North America. So North America will certainly, with absolute certainty, electrify in the next couple of decades because the manufacturers will not be able to produce anything else because Europe is too big a market for them to just turn their back on, right? Mm -hmm. And Asia. Don't forget Asia as well, also electrifying. So back to the Fed's goal. Fed saying we want 20%, 30%, 50% by such and such year. What I'm saying to you is that it won't make a, amount to a hill of beans, what the Fed say. At the end of the day, the industry itself will electrify because it has to. Now, there's a, a really good news silver lining here. Um, I think it's all good news, frankly, but for, for consumers who are concerned that the government or the Euro, even worse European governments are now forcing them into a class of vehicles, <laughs> what could be worse than having the Euros telling you what to do? Exactly. Right? Why do you think I'm here? Oh. Why do you think I'm here? So, so I don't have to deal with that, right? Well, here's, here's the really good news. The Ford F-150 Lightning, that's, yep. that's that is, it, first of all, the F-150 is the top selling vehicle in the United States. It's the top selling pickup truck for more than 40 years in a row. Okay. The F-150 Lightning is in every respect just the same as the F-150 that you've been buying right now, except that it does not to 60 in under four seconds, will never need to go to a gas station, it requires almost no maintenance. The GM Hummer that you could go and buy, gasoline or diesel, 300 horsepower. The electric GM Hummer, 1,000 horsepower with a staggering 14,000 foot-pounds of torque, not to 60 in three seconds. It is inconceivable to me that consumers will go down to dealerships and say, nah, thanks. I, I don't want that incredibly fast, really fun spaceship gadget thing. I'd rather have the old clunky thing. Now I have to go to the gas station, <laughs> put half my paycheck in once a week and get endless maintenance and wait for it to break down. It's just inconceivable. Imagine, if you will, the first dad that drives into the neighborhood in his thousand horsepower Hummer right? And the kids are chasing him down the street like he's the Pied Piper of Hamlin and going straight on to their dads and saying, Dad, why do we have this diesel pile of, uh, I, I, I won't finish the sentence. Yeah. Um, it's, consumers don't behave like that. Consumers love gadgets. Electric vehicles are just the biggest and most fancy gadget they'll ever have owned. And they will make the plans of the feds and state governments melt into insignificance. It'll be consumer driven revolution in this country, as by the way, all technology revolutions always are. The government always plays a role in the early stages of it. Internet, mobile phones, touch screens, satellites, the government plays a role in the early stages of it, but in the end, the consumer drives the bus because you cannot compete with the mighty US consumer. And as the US consumer goes, so the globe goes. Uh, so it's a, it's a fait accompli, it's a done deal. So uh, I'm assuming you, do you drive an EV? 
Of course, yeah. I've been doing so for 10 years. And I'll, yeah. I'll let you into a little secret what Wall Street hates about me. Um, one of the three really stupid things that I do is that I didn't come here today on a four-wheeled uh, electric vehicle. I came here on my two-wheeled electric vehicle. And I will say this to your listeners. If you like motorcycles, do not go and drive, test drive a zero SRS electric motorcycle unless you're prepared to buy it. Because once you've driven it, you will buy it immediately. I've been riding motorcycles my whole life, and uh, uh, there's no experience like opening up the throttle on an electric motorcycle. Everything you've heard about Tesla's acceleration and everything else, this is like firing a crossbow. Um, and, and, and I do it on sunshine. So, you know, it's interesting you should say that because now this is this is making me think of I, I think the perception of EVs for people is like, oh, no, it's not going to be powerful. It's going to kind of putt putt down the street and it's not going to, you know, I can't really get that. That's that consumer, you know, you, you talked about test driving. That's what consumers have in their heads, right? Isn't it? It's not my imagination. No, you're absolutely right. A lot of consumers think that EVs are just glorified golf carts. Right. And a golf cart's fun on the golf course, but you shouldn't be driving it around in, a, in, in any other sense. Now, the, there's a certain cure for this, a certain cure for it. Test drive an EV. And when you do so, uh, you know, like I speak publicly about this all the time. And, you know, when you speak publicly, you're always supposed to try and get people to laugh and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I, when I open up, I show of hands who drives an electric vehicle. And then I say show of hands who would go back to gasoline or diesel. That's my laugh line. Right. Everyone in the audience that drives an electric vehicle just laughs. Right. Nobody would. I, by the way, you read some articles in the press about how people are going back to gasoline. This is nonsense. Not supported by the data at all. I've never met anyone that drives an electric vehicle who would ever go back to driving diesel or, or gasoline. Why? Because when you press the pedal, an electric vehicle does what you want it to. It, 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 even the, the cheap ones fire away from the lights. And I can tell you this, that anyone who thinks that electric vehicles are not powerful should ask the I happen to live in an affluent neighborhood. I'm very fortunate. Uh, thank you, America. You've been good to me, and I hope I've been good back to you. Um, but but uh, so sometimes I get alongside the lights with people in Lamborghinis and Ferraris and 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 all these other, and you know, incredibly expensive cars. Light turns green. I'm gone. I hear yeah. all this noise behind me, and certainly they are going to catch up to me probably in in five or six hundred meters, right? But I they cannot take me at the lights. Forget it. And all I'm right. thinking is this is hilarious. This motorcycle. I mean, it's like a twenty-two, twenty-three thousand dollar motorcycle. But after all the incentives and everything else, like that, I paid about ten thousand for it. And I've got a guy behind me in a three-quarters of a million dollar car. Where is he? Behind me. <laughs> <laughs> so when I buy my EV, I think I'm a year away from buying my just uh, for you know my car. The transition period that I have in my head. Am I going to be charging it most of the time at home, or am I going to be charging it somewhere else? So this is really interesting. Um, if the Department of Energy has released, you know what they say about statistics, you know, the lies, damn lies and statistics, right? And the worst type of statistic is the one that's correct, but not helpful, right? And so the Department of Energy has put out a statistic saying that eight out of 10 EV drivers charge their vehicles at home, from which the industry has taken that eight out of 10 EV drivers will charge at home. I can tell you that this is utter bunkum. The reason that eight out of 10 EV drivers charge at home today is because they're like me, affluent, single family residents, big garage with room to park in it, sufficient mm -hmm. electric circuit to power an EV charger, right? That does not describe the US population, far less the global population. In fact, the majority of people live places that they will not be able to charge their electric vehicles because they live in apartment buildings yeah. or because their homes have, uh, have insufficient electric circuits to support it or because there's so much junk in their garage, they can't get their cars inside, inside the garage anyway. 
Okay, that would be a terrifying. So, so no. Uh, I mean, I, you may, but the answer is the great majority majority of people will not charge their vehicles at home. It doesn't matter. It's fine. If you own a vehicle, except for the few that are propped up on bricks on lawns across the country, it means you go somewhere in the thing. And we're going to get you where you're going. So I'll give you a couple of interesting things to think about where that's concerned. According to the Department of Transportation, the average US sedan drives 30.4 miles per day. We all think that we're you know, getting in Canastoga wagons and pushing across the West for days on yeah. end, but the truth of the matter is none of us go anywhere. Eight out of 10 commuters drive less than 24 miles for the round trip commute. This is describing almost everybody. Now, another interesting statistic is that the average dwell time in a, in a US supermarket, this, this statistic is a few years old, by the way, so it may have changed, but, it, but it's close enough, 47 minutes. And I'm gonna say this to you, that even on one of our slower uh, uh, level two solar power charge, slower ones. Mm -hmm. And again, remember, we're not making them slow. That's just how they are. Um, in 47 minutes, you would get half of your daily range replenishment. Yeah. So you have to forget this whole, I'm going to drive my car till it's empty and then go somewhere and wait around while I yeah. pump something horrible into the gas tank. Get away from that. And just think about what's going to end up happening is every time you go somewhere, you're going to fuel up a little bit. You're going to top off. Two stops at a supermarket. Uh, or one stop at the supermarket, one at the coffee shop, or one at the park, or picking up the kids, or whatever else like that. And you just got your entire daily range replenishment. And so this guy in, in the Wall Street Bank said to me the other day, are you telling me i got to go to the store to fuel up? And I said, oh, do you go to the store anyway? Yes. Well, then, no, I'm not telling you you have to go to the store. I'm telling you you were going there anyway. Just make it more useful and fuel up while you're there for crying out loud, you know? And that's how it will be. All right. Yeah, I don't know. That's funny it, because in this country, when people can't, like people here are so resistant to things like public transportation. Like that, it kind of reminds you what you just said reminds me of that a little bit because no, I want to be in my car. And yeah. Like, no, I want I want my charger at home. It's yep. just and and it's an easy thing to get around because, like you said, I mean, I'm happy to do that. But yeah, that's okay. That that's a good point. Um, finally, so you talked about Tesla a little bit. I'm not going to let you mention them again because everybody when I, I, I talk to you, it's like I said, I talk to experts, right? In this, <laughs> in this industry, in the transportation industry in general, who should I talk? What companies do you think, like when you, what companies do you look at in the transportation industry and go, wow, what they're doing is just so cool right now. I mean, look, I, I, uh, and I wouldn't have brought up Tesla. I think, I think Tesla has done a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, but I wouldn't have brought them up because, as I say, I think what's going to be really transformational is when uh, uh, the kind of vehicles that Americans want, which let's make it, or, or face it, are pickup trucks and SUVs. Um, th these are going to be the thing that, that really change this whole dynamic. Um, and so you cannot ignore Rivian. Uh, you, you, d d for two reasons. First of all, they're the first to market with a pickup truck. And secondly, because it's a beautifully engineered and crafted piece of, uh, of equipment. Um, but then also what's really exciting is, when was the last time any of the US manu auto manufacturers were exciting? I mean, come on, seriously, right? right? GM, for, I mean, uh, fantastic, but exciting, no. They're becoming exciting. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna say this to you, and mostly I wanna say this to your listeners. Uh, I love America. It's my adopted home. I'm an immigrant. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great country. If you look at the American automotive industry, in, up until the 50s and, and 60s, it was the undisputed global leader. No question about it. Come the 70s, we completely gave that up to the Japanese and to the Germans and then later to the Koreans and to others. And we have been a, an also-ran 
ever since. And I find that depressing. This electrification of transportation thing gives the United States the opportunity to come straight charging right back into a global, global leadership position because it fits perfectly with the way Americans think and the way our economy runs. The fantastically efficient capital markets in this country, the fantastically innovative people here, the technology development. Google didn't start in Japan or Korea, or Germany, or, 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 or anywhere else for that matter. It started here, and there's a reason for that. That kind of thinking and that kind of exercise in the capital markets can put the United States right back into the forefront again as a global automotive leadership. I think it's an imperative, and I am thrilled by it, uh, frankly. So I would say this, you ask me, who, sh who should we look at? Anyone. Anyone who's playing in this space, you're going to see the most fantastic variation in business models, vehicle types. Gone are the days when everyone's going around four wheels and going to the gas station. Uh, you're going to see all kinds of different uh, uh, business models around fueling. You're going to see all kinds of different vehicles moving people around. We set the world record for the longest flight in a, in a production electric aircraft last year using our product on nothing but sunshine. So aviation is wow. going to transform. Yes. Uh, EV tolls, air, it, it, uh, autonomous vehicles, all of this is coming. All of the companies who are involved in that de deserve our attention and our support. There will be winners and losers, but support all of them because it's going to move one of the most important industries forward ever. And from a, if you care about this country, uh, uh, from a geopolitical, environmental and economic sense, there's hardly anything that you can do that can be more important than supporting this industry. I firmly believe that. All right. We're going to wrap it on that. That's a great that, that's a great uh, closing statement. I appreciate that. Uh, folks, you can learn more about Beam Global at its website at beamforall.com and on all the usual social media platforms. Desmond, uh, this was so great. I really appreciated the conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Great, great question, John. Thank you to you. And thank you also, of course, to all your listeners. All right, everybody, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're, wherever else you're watching or listening. It'll help us get the word out, and we'd appreciate it. To learn more about HMH, the Transportation Transformation Agency, visit hmhagency.com or find us on all the usual social media platforms that I mentioned earlier. For Desmond Wheatley, I'm John Halpin. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a new edition of the Future of Transportation podcast. <laughs>